It looks like uh, Marcy and Mike are up and ready to talk this morning. So uh, let's just go to the phone lines. Good morning, Marcy. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Oh, boy, it's so cold. <laughs> I'm just worried about next week. Hey, that's a concern. I looked. Uh, I, I have friends up in West Central Wyoming where I like to go up and hike during the warm season. And I always look at their weather in the morning. And it was 13 below in Pinedale this morning. And that kind of tells me what kind of cold is up there. Sometimes it slides off to the east, but a lot of times it comes this way. And uh, they've been ranging from... from 13 below to as much as 20 below over the past week or two. So a lot of that cold's going to make it down this far. So, you know, it's uh, we're not going to see anything like that. But bless you. It's, uh, Thank you. Uh, it's, it's, winter's not over yet, much as we want it to be. What's what's going on in your world this morning? Okay. Um, so one thing is I have these red, I think they're called red bird hawthorns. Yeah. Have you ever heard of those? And How about red tip? They, oh no, not not hawthorn. They're, they're red. They're some unusual form of um, hawthorn, but okay. they're they've got. They call them red bird. Um, you don't see them that often, but I have three of them. Okay. And when they bloom, I mean they're gorgeous. They're this light pink, uh-huh. but it just it's really really pretty because with the red. But they've already started blooming, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering, should I try to cover them? No, I wouldn't worry about that, at least not with the kind of temperatures they're talking. Um, it's uh, Hawthorne Rephalepsis is really a very cold-hardy plant. It goes a lot further north than this, and the blooms are not that tender. The blooms are really okay. pretty tough and hardy. Now, if we got one of those frosts like we had a couple of weeks ago that was just almost like a sheet of ice, yes, you might get a little bit of burn on the edges of the petals, but uh, um, right now, the coldest I'm seeing, and where 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 are you, Marcy? What area? I'm actually in Richmond. Okay. I'm up yeah. Near Houston. Yeah, you you should have no problems at all. Okay. Um, because, uh, you know, if you get way up in the hill country where we might get in the low 20s or something, not going to be an issue. I think we're forecast to be right at freezing in San Antonio, which means you're probably going to be sitting down there about 35 to 38 degrees, and that's not going to bother them in the least. Well, right now we're we're 38, but next I've already looked at next week, and I know that that can change. But one of the nights is supposed to get 29. 29, and that's probably Thursday morning, Wednesday night, Thursday morning is yeah. what they're saying yeah. here. 29 is not going to bother them. It should okay. not bother the flowers. Should certainly will not bother the plants, but it should not bother the flowers. Okay, well, another thing is I've already planted my tomatoes, um, <laughs> but they're in pots. Okay. So, and they're going to stay in pots. I mean, I had planned that anyway. Okay. So I, I let, yesterday I moved them from my backyard all the way to the garage in several trips and because they're heavy. And so I'm just, I guess I'm just going to keep them in the garage and bring them out in the daytime. Is that what I should do? Yeah, they need the sunlight, especially at this stage, because young plants like that, if they don't get the sun, they will get spindly, they will get weak, and they really never recover from that. So you need to get some of those. (laughs) <laughs> you, you need were, to get. I mean, they were growing. <laughs> yeah. Well, they were in a warm greenhouse, and uh, no, where they yeah, like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, they were. Yeah, but um, invest in some of these little plant trolleys that you can put the pots up on, and then you're just rolling them in and out when it's just for the garage. Um, yeah, I should but, do that. Yeah, it. Uh, 
The other option, um, and and we're talking something that will protect them down in the mid-20s, if you wanted to, you could take not a sharp pole, but something like a broomstick, and just stick down in the center of the pot and just make a little tent of one of the, what they call, row covers over it. Uh, I like the one called Insulate. The nice thing about Insulate is that it allows enough light through that the plants continue to grow and do just fine, so... What uh, you could do there is just, you know, like to say, put, but not something that's going to poke through it, but something that's blunt mm-hmm. on the end. Drape this over it, wrap something around, you know, the bottom of the pot to simply tie the row cover in okay. place. And you'll, you know, have to stick a hose under the edge to water periodically. But you'd leave that on for a couple of weeks without any problem and sleep a lot better at night because that's going <laughs> to uh, <laughs> that that's going to get them, you know, probably down to the mid twenties. I wish you were in San Antonio because I'm going to teach a seminar this morning and going to yeah. talk about some of the things that we've learned about how much coal protection we can get by raising the sugar level in the sap. But uh, if you're spraying, um, and you know, you can't do this the last minute, but spraying with things like liquid seaweed really does make things a lot more cold hardy. And I start that, you know, the day I put my tomatoes out. I don't usually, oh, I usually I go straight that. in I the, yeah, I, you know, there's just not a time to do multiple transplants. But liquid seaweed's going to help. Uh, good fish fertilizers help build up the sugar level in the plants so they don't freeze. Oh. But at this okay. point, at this point, yeah, give them all the light you can, but protect okay. them anytime there's a threat of frost. Okay, well, I have some that I I had like two that I put in the ground, and right now I have um, I have tomato cages on them, and uh-huh. I wrapped several layers of burlap yesterday. Okay, should I leave? Can I? Does that even work? It keeps the all? it keeps the wind off of them, and wind can be very desiccating. Um, I guess it probably helps a little bit, but the negative okay. is you've just cut off the sunlight, uh, and that's I where, know that's what I was thinking. Yeah, it uh, look into getting uh, a good roll cover, and it's just the letter N dash S U L A T E is the one that I really okay. like. And uh, that can stay on. We've left it on things all winter, things we were protecting, like some tropical vines and things like that. Wrap them up in December and take it off in March, and they're just fine underneath it. So it does make it a lot easier. Okay. The one other thing, uh, things that are in the ground, and a friend of mine that I, Thursdays are my day off, uh, and I see various people around here where I live outside of Bernie, and this fellow was bemoaning the fact that he had put tomatoes in the ground and it was going to get really cold. And uh, he said, I think I'm just going out and buy a bunch of styrofoam ice chest and, uh, and put over yeah. them. And I said, John, before you do that, you know, check with, you know, some of these places that receive shipments. I mean, when we get our beneficial nematodes in, they come in a styrofoam container. And he said, oh, I know somebody at one of the pet shops that brings in fish that way. And he sent me a picture a little later and it looked like just white little e-glues all over his tomato plants. And he said, and it didn't cost me a penny. And I said, well, I'm going to call them. Yeah. Send me a picture tomorrow. And the plants were just absolutely great. So, um, okay. <laughs> it's, I have uh, a vet that I, that we use and they're like the old, like country time yeah. vet type place. Yeah. And we've been going there for years. So I'm going to call them today. Yeah. Yeah. They'll probably just give it to you. Keeps it out of the landfill. Turn it upside down and put a brick or something on top of it. It's not going to dissolve in the rain like a cardboard box would. And uh, it's just, it's literally a nice little eagle form. 
Okay. Well, thank you so much for the ideas. Always a pleasure, Marcy. Thanks for giving me a call okay. this morning. Okay. Have a good Bye. day. Bye. Bye. All right. Let's uh, let's see what Mike's up to this morning. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Bob. How you doing? Sir? Oh, it's just going to be another beautiful day out there. If we keep that sunshine around like we had yesterday afternoon, it's going to be a real nice day. Indeed it is. Indeed it is. Yeah, my uh, my uh, 60 tomato seedlings and, and peppers I've got started are, are loving, loving that sunshine. Yes, sir. Yeah, uh, yeah. your previous caller, I've done, you know, uh, I've done a lot of things after, you know, put, after putting tomatoes out early, you know, mm-hmm. putting no pots over them and whatnot. Yeah, there's a lot of things you can do there. But uh, I... None of mine are out yet, Bob. I, none got, of mine either. I've, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've got about, yeah, I've got about 60 started. Good. And I noticed yesterday uh, in, in various sizes, you know, 18 inches down to some I transplanted yesterday with a couple sets of leaves on. Uh, these, you know, some some of the bigger ones, Bob, the leaves uh, on the lower limbs, a few of them are getting a, a, a little brown and, and crispy on the ends. Did they dry out at some point? Crispy, uh, crispy on the edges of the and tips of the leaves says root damage. And the okay. most common thing that causes that is getting a little too dry. I know you don't use the synthetic fertilizers, but anybody that's still using sure. the Miracle Grow and that crud, they can. Uh, you can burn them with fertilizers. Uh, sure. Herbicides will do the same thing. But on a young plant like that, getting a little too dry is uh, is the most common culprit. But the nice thing is they grow right out of it. Yeah, yeah. Now I I made a miracle mixture this year, Bob, with my compost and growing green. And boy, I tell you what, I've got <laughs> I've got the strongest the strongest seedlings that that I have. Uh, you know, and, and I'm a seed grower. You know, yeah. So it's, uh, yeah. And so I, I and I mixed I mixed the growing green pretty strong, and, and I know that's not it because they didn't have they didn't show anything. Just no, no. There's until, there's no salt you know, in there to burn. That, yeah, that's not a concern. Yeah. Okay, Bob. Now, I've got them in various size containers as well. Now, the, the cups, i got some in cups that are, you know, I don't know, 16 ounces mm-hmm. or 14 ounces that are, that are pretty big in some of the big ones. And, you know, I can see roots now uh, a little, you know, and they're not root bound. I'm getting ready to transfer those up to gallons. Oh, and then, you know, next step probably today. Uh, now, it, even if the roots were a little crowded, they wouldn't they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't dry out on the tips like that, would they? Well, the more the more leaves you have on the plant, you know, water doesn't evaporate out of the soil to any great degree. People always think that's how the soil dries out, but the water goes in the roots, up through the plants, out through the leaves, and that's yeah. where the water goes. The more leaves a plant has, the more water it's going to use. The faster it's going to dry out. And I tell people house plants and most vegetables being root bound is not an issue. It's not going to cause a problem the way it does in trees and woody shrubs. But uh, it will get to the point. People say, when should I transplant? And I tell them it's when you can't keep them, keep them watered, when you're having to water three times a day because yeah. that plant's yeah. using the water so quickly. But uh, uh, so indirectly you know, all this good care <laughs> could lead to drying out so fast that it could lead to a little bit of uh, yeah. burn on the margin. But the nice thing yeah. is, the way tomatoes grow, you're going to have 
10 sets of new leaves in the next very few weeks, and the plants are going to yeah. totally grow beyond this little temporary setback. Yeah, and on that on that watering note, Bob, you know, I you taught me a long time ago that, you know, I used to overwater my tomatoes, you know, once I had them in and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on that note, I can stick my finger in those cups and, and you know, not even, you know, well, not a knuckle deep and feel moisture. So, uh, and, and I, I kind of thought the other day, well, maybe I'm watering, you know, too much with the, uh, um, so, it, it's possible, but that... yeah, the thing to remember, Mike, is that water doesn't hurt anything. And I always tell people there's no such thing as, uh, too much water, but there is too Black often. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's, it's when yeah. you're watering so often that you're driving the oxygen out of the soil, then you've got a problem. Um, at right. this stage, you know, I would never let a tomato get really, really dry. If it's just a little right. bit of moisture in the soil, yeah, probably time to water again. Now, when we get those things up and growing with fruit on them, uh, the whole thing changes because uh, if we let things get too dry and then we water, then we start getting cracks in the fruit. So we've got, uh, we're at this point, we're wanting to encourage all the growth we can without damaging the roots. So we may keep things a little bit more moist than we would later. Later, we're just working to maintain even temperature. We don't ever want them to be too wet. We don't want them to be too dry because we don't want to damage the fruit that way. But at this stage, if that if that soil's really dry on the surface, then I think it's probably time to give them another drink. Okay, okay, Bob. Yeah, I, you know, I've been you know every couple of three days. So yeah. I, and you know that he, you know, coming and going. So yeah, it, it's kind of, you know, it, it, it's a learning process. Uh, <laughs> you know, you know, every year. So <laughs> and every year is and different. It, and, and it's 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 you know the best therapy uh, uh, anybody could ever you know. Well, you just like that. But you just like uh, that bumper sticker says uh, gardening is cheaper than th- therapy, and you get tomatoes. So in your case, you're oh, exactly right. Oh yeah, and it, and it don't cost a whole whole lot, you know. Right. And, and you know, I got on a on a on a finer note, Bob. I got aggravated blooming and yeah, and rain, and winds building. Uh, 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 nest in my birdhouse, and uh, on a sadder note, uh, my oldest daughter just lost her father-in-law up in South I'm Dakota. Sorry. Straight, straight out of his mouth, Bob, uh, the roundup got me. So, wow. You know, in closing, uh, uh, I'll leave you with that, and you know we don't we don't need to you know go into that, but uh, straight out of his mouth, you know, a man that farmed for. God, his life, I guess, but yep. that was that was straight out of his mouth. So. Well, and it's anyway, it's sad, and I, you know, wish wish some folks up in uh, the the powers that be had a little more sense. Uh, we are going to have first Saturday in March uh, for everyone who's interested and concerned, as you and I are. Friend Diane Baines is going to be uh, at the nursery to talk about all the new genetic modifications. And to me, there's some stuff that's even scarier than Roundup, but that's that's a whole other story. But sorry for your loss, but uh, glad for all the good things going on in the world. Mike, you get yeah. out and uh, enjoy this beautiful day to come. Same to you, Bob. Thank Let's you most kindly. You time. Thank you. Look forward to it. Bye. And you better dial quickly because there is just one line left open. We're going to talk to James and then Bob and then Sid. And uh, then could be you if you can dial quickly enough. Let's just hit line number three there and say good morning, James. 
Morning, Bob. How are you doing? You know, it's just going to be a really nice weekend. Yesterday morning started out so messy, and boy, by yesterday evening, it was just downright beautiful, and I'm hoping that's the kind of day we're going to have today. Yes, sir. I, the only big project I got is go pick up a truckload of mesquite for next week, but <laughs> stove, but yeah, you know how that goes. Well, and and yeah, it, it's it's work doing it, but the anticipation of all that you can do with it makes it very, very worthwhile. Yes, sir. Hey, I heard you guys talking about water and plants, right? And I've been doing this uh, nursery business for gosh, fifty years. Oh. Uh, we've been growing, and. Watering is the hardest gardening technique to teach anybody, and even people have been doing it for years and years and years. Yep. Uh, you still blow it every once in a while. Now, I know that you'll uh, walk around your nursery, and you'll take your the, your boot, and you'll, uh, you'll tap a plant, and you'll know exactly whether it needs to be watered <laughs> or not. Or in many Am cases, right? it should have been watered two hours ago, but yes, sir, you're right about that. Um, I try to teach my students um, just to go down the line. Like I'm nursing 60 trays right now of peppers and tomatoes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I try to teach them to uh, to judge uh, judge the humidity by the weight of the tray. Just yeah. lift up a corner. Yeah. And, and that's usually, it works for me, and it's been working for me for all these years, and uh, that's what I teach. Well, and you're exactly right. Uh, of course, there's a little difference in a tray and a 15-gallon container that weighs 60 pounds, uh, you know, wet. But uh, I, you're exactly right. The other thing, too, and, and I don't, you know, it's not as easy, but you can still do it with stuff in trays. But what I always try to, when I'm trying to teach people the water, is take and tap a plant out of the pot and show them that 80% of the roots are in the bottom 20% of the pot. So unless you water thoroughly enough to get that that soil, that root ball wet all the way through, you really haven't watered. And I, because I will, you know, somebody I'll see one of our employees and have customers occasionally the same way. Uh, but, you know, they'll go by, they'll water a plant and uh, say, so now you think you watered that plant properly. I'll tilt that pot up, slip the root off of the uh, pot off of it. And you can see the water went about a third of the way down into the soil. And that plant, you, I mean, you've hardly done enough to do any good at all. And that's why one of my lines is there's no such thing as too much water. There's just too often. So, yeah, I'm with you. You can judge once you've had a plant for a little while. You can sure judge the need for water by picking the pot up. But then when you turn around to water it, man, just flood it. It just uh, Any excess is just going to run on through. So be sure you've watered it well. Another trick we use on the... Uh on the trays is uh is bottom watering Mm -hmm. that way you don't have to get the leaves wet and that's really that's really the way to go um johnny's has got uh, some really nice uh, waterproof trays uh, little short trays that make it really easy to go down the line Mm -hmm. and uh and do your bottom watering and where you're staying organic and where you're doing it right, that works real well. I know one big grower 
and this was one of the chemical boys, and they tried doing this, and of course, when you're using all those chemicals, you get a little verticillum, a little fusarium, you get a lot of these rot, root rotting diseases in there, and they were actually doing flood irrigation where they would flood the entire bench, and they were just moving that disease around in there, so uh, I I like the idea of drenching the pot in there, but I'm going to stop and change the water every few plants because just in case there is something unpleasant going on in the soil, I don't want to spread it, spread it from plant to plant that way. Well, bottom watering is easy because when you you lift up the uh, the tray mm-hmm. and it's light and there's no water in the tray, you know you might have to water. Yeah, it's it's really. A lot of fun to do it that way, and you can introduce your has to grow and all your your uh, your good fertilizers down mm-hmm. there on the tray. I've had good luck with it. Uh, I just heard you guys talking about watering, and I thought I'd blab a little bit about it. <laughs> well, James, your your experience uh, over. And and I'm sure like you're like me. You've learned an awful lot of things the hard way, and that's what I always tell people. I want you to keep from making the same mistakes that I've made over the years. So your knowledge and experience are always welcomed by me and I'm sure by a few thousand people listening out there. So don't ever hesitate to call. The soil temperature, um, if you're in a hoop house, the soil temperature is about right to start transplanting, but it's yeah. a little too cool. For tomatoes, uh, especially in my, in my uh, soil out here. Yep, uh, that's very true, and it looks like we may actually be down close to that freezing point again by about Thursday morning this week. So uh, uh, if you got your hoop house, you got your uh, cold frame, you got a place to put them, that's just fine. But mine sure aren't going to go out and uh, experience the full force of nature for a little while longer yet. I've got a question. Um, the cover crops the elbon rye got invaded by a black aphid Mm -hmm. and i asked one of my guys that's working down at the uh stock show and rodeo to ask that etymologist down there i forget her name probably molly cat she said that it was so warm in january that the black aphids proliferated Uh uh-huh and uh, the only thing I could think to do was to frail mow those uh, those cover crops, and I think I did a pretty good job of halfway wiping them out. Yeah, and, you know, if they're not going to spread to anything else, I mean, the, we, we grow that Elbon rye for a number of reasons. We're trying to bulk up the organic material in the soil. We're using it as a trap crop for the nematodes. And uh, we're just, you know, we're growing it for the organic material. And if they shorten the life of it by a couple of weeks, I don't think it's a really big deal. I sure wouldn't be getting out there spraying because chances are they're not going to spread to anything else. And, you know, like you're talking about, knock the tops down on those things, get rid of that really soft succulent tissue. Um, I think you can control them without really going to real any extreme measures. And uh, I sure wouldn't be out there spraying at this point. Well, that was, you know, it's either mow or spray, so I went with the, I hooked up the the frail mower to the BCS and uh, knocked them down a yeah. pretty low, and uh, that slowed them down a lot. I know that. Well, and uh, that particular aphid, I rarely see it on any, uh, you know, on any of the crops that we grow, any of the vegetable crops and things like that. It likes those grasses and things, but... Uh, 
I, it's sure not one. I, there are sure a lot of other pests that would cause me a lot more concern uh, than than that particular one than that black aphid so but you know you just got to watch you got to judge when it becomes uh, a matter of economic import and then you just have to control it with the least toxic way you can and in this case that mower does a good job yes sir okay well uh, thanks for taking my call and answering all my questions Bob. well it's always a pleasure talking to you we'll talk another time uh, i've really getting ready to do my seminar this morning have been doing a lot of research on uh some of the things coming out about bricks and let me tell you what there's some fascinating stuff out there i i learned in a hurry you know you don't ever go to a website if somebody's got something to sell you uh, but some of the informational, some of the research websites out there, there's there's just a lot of neat new stuff we've learned. And uh, we'll talk about that next time we talk. That sounds like fun. Thanks, Bob. Thank you, James. We'll talk again. All right. Next up is a man with a very good name. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Bob. How are you, sir? I'm doing good. Um, kind of uh, just a couple questions on some products that I've come across. I wanted your opinion on them. Okay. Uh, for, for use in the area. Okay. And the first one is something that I believe you uh, discussed with Harold uh, here uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago. And that's something called biochar. Mm-hmm. And I came across that stuff, and I went out and actually bought some in a little package. Uh-huh. Very extensive. Well, and that's that's going to be exactly what I was going to tell you about it. You know, anything you buy, I always look at what I call the cost-benefit ratio. Uh, are the results going to justify the cost of the product? And biochar is one of those things that is a great product, but gosh, you know, the price they get on it. I think that you get a lot of the same effect. You get a lot of the detox of the soil with things like dry humates, and you get some additional, you know, benefits from it. So I have nothing against biochar except the price of it. Now, one of my questions for Howard Garrett today is going to be the, you know, the total difference between activated charcoal and biochar. And I'm not sure where the line comes. Biochar, of course, is a very natural process. It's something that people have been using for, you know, generations, if not longer. But if you're not facing, you know, some sort of problem, um, if you can't make your own, I'm just, I'm, I'm with you. I'm just not sure it's worth the price. It's very definitely a good product, but in my opinion, um, for the money, I, I'm probably not going to be using that product. Yeah. And the other thing I noticed about it was very light. Yeah. And it will, you know, it, uh, it has, uh, a tendency to stick to things, oh, yeah. people, and animals, <laughs> and white carpets, and, and you know, yeah, countertops, and too. yeah, things things that make uh, that don't promote domestic tranquility, shall we say? But right. yeah, it's just right. it's just it's a way of making charcoal, and basically what you're doing is burning wood without any oxygen, so it's not flaming up, right. it's not you know burning down to ash. But you're driving out uh, a lot of the liquid components of what's going to be in wood and leaving you. And, and that's just what good charcoal is. And uh, I'm just and to me, I think the, the name biochar came along with about a 500 percent increase in price. And I'm just not sure okay. it's, it's better than some of the other products out there. Yeah. OK. 
The other thing that I came across was um, the city is offering uh, compost mm-hmm. at their uh, Bitters yard and the Nelson Gardens yard, apparently. Right. Uh, I went out there and got some of that, and uh, I was somewhat impressed with it, especially that it's free. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it's, uh, it's certainly not... Uh, finished, uh, not well, finished product. Yeah, that's but, uh, that's what I was going to say. It's I, I sure wouldn't be working it into the ground at this point. I what I've seen of what they're giving away as quote compost, I would call it more sort of advanced stage mulch. It's mulch that's that's decomposing, but it's sure not to the point. I I'm not sure, and I don't know if there's any real definition of where. You know, organic mulch ends and compost starts. It's just a matter of age and breakdown, and uh, I, it's great, great stuff. But I'm I'm going to be using it on the surface of the ground rather than working it in at this point. Right, right. Thing thing I was impressed with it uh, was that uh, I didn't find any sand or any obvious chunks of wood in it. Yeah. That uh, you see in a lot of commercial products. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I think they're using a pretty good trammel screen. I, I have to give it to them. Is, as much as I complain about some of the stupid things the city does, including what Via is trying to do right now, but we better not go there. But I also have to really give them credit where credit's due because uh, um, there's fella, uh, David is uh, the guy that heads the solid waste division. And let me tell you what, the inroads that they have made in recycling and recycling organic products uh, you know, yard waste, as some people would call it. Uh, the city is doing a better job than any other city that I know of. So, uh, I, you know, I, my hats are off. My hat is off to them for all the good things they're doing. And uh, um, so, yeah, and their their recycling program and their uh, production of mulch, their brush pickup. Um, yeah, they're doing a great job, and they're producing a good, clean product. And uh, only real complaints I've ever heard of is somebody that got some that was a little too fresh that had some poison ivy ground up in it, and that was not a pleasant situation. <laughs> but, you know, once it gets down to the point you're talking about of what they're calling compost, uh, you're way beyond any kind of problems with that. But it's it it's certainly, and, and you phrased it exactly right, it's not finished compost. Uh, if I were getting it, I'm going to pilot i'm going to probably add a little bit more in the way of uh, uh molasses or something like that to increase the speed of breakdown on it and it will get to the point but uh, uh the nicest thing about it is is the price and if you happen to have a truck or a trailer where you can haul it man what a great service they're offering yeah that's for sure the, the other thing that i did with it i was a little concerned that it might have some herbicide or something in it mm-hmm and so I did the water test on it where I soaked uh, a quantity of it for a while and uh, then I took the water that, uh, you know, came from that and sprayed it on some broadleaf weeds and didn't have any problem with that. So it looked like, uh, you know, at least the, the material yep. that I got didn't yep. have that, that sort of problem. Well, and, and you know, that's a, a very good and very valid concern. The, the thing about, you know, our herbicide contamination issues we're sort of at two different levels and when you're out you know in the country and you're looking at hay 
they are spraying a really nasty stuff on there called picloram that just does not break down and go away. Um, what people are using on their yards, yes, it's dangerous. Yes, it is carcinogenic. Yes, it is something that I would never put on my yard. I would, you know, and it's going to cause cancer and pets and things like that for the people that do use it. But it, those things are relatively quickly broken down in the composting process. So by the time it gets to the point that the city is uh, selling, um, it probably, you know, you're, you're not going to have, um, you're very unlikely to have any serious contamination issues there. I'll just put it that way, because anything that was there uh, is probably some of these products that, even though they are very toxic, even though they're nasty things, they do decompose and break down unlike the picloram that uh, guys are spraying on their hay and stuff. Right. The thing I thought I might try to do with it would be to add uh, some of it to my uh, leaf compost piles mm-hmm. and uh, let it uh, uh, you know, get a little bit more mature. Sure. And, uh, you know, help that out a little bit to add some, some additional uh, oh. It, that will very definitely help. And do do spray it down with either liquid molasses or work some dry molasses in because you, that, that microbial life is what you want for the two reasons. It will speed up the breakdown, but it will also detoxify any contaminants that are in there. So, yeah, I think it's fine mixing it in with some of your leaf molds, some of your other compost products. But uh, uh, do, add, do add a sugar source to it so your microbes will get kicked into high gear. All right. Sounds good. That takes care of things. Well, Bob, I appreciate the call. Very good points you bring up, and uh, always good to hear from you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. All right, back to gardening, back to the phone line. It's going to be Sid and Sam and Paula and Susan, and Sid's up first. What's going on up in your part of the world, Sid? Well, good morning, Bob. Uh, I have a number of uh, gallon clear jugs like you buy distilled water in. Right. And I've been saving, and I've been thinking about just cutting the bottoms out of them and putting those over uh, tomato plants. How much effect do you think that's going to be to uh, protect against the, the, the cold weather? And uh, is it going to be a problem if I leave it on there too long? Well, here's the issue with that. You know, you're definitely cutting off the wind. Uh, you are very definitely giving them some temperature protection. But on the other hand, when the sun comes out and shines on that little clear um, hot cap, as it were, uh, it's going to heat up inside. And it's kind of like, you know, leaving your car closed up on a hot day. Uh, it can actually get too hot underneath that little hot cap. So, I I don't, and, and I've done that to protect things from frost, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to tell you to put them on and off on a daily basis because you, uh, if you leave them on, number one, there's a potential for them to fry when the sun comes out, and number two, you're not getting any gas exchange. You want that carbon dioxide to get into the, around the plants. You want that oxygen to move back out into the surrounding air. And uh, you want a little bit of wind because when they start waving back and forth, that makes uh, you know that makes for a stronger plant. So yeah, I think you're fine to use that for a you know temporary protection, but I sure wouldn't leave it on for any extended period. Should I leave the the cap on or or take the cap off? Um, probably leave the cap on for you know for protection. 
if you feel like, you know, you say, I'm going out of town, I just I can't be putting them on and off, then I would leave the cap off. But where you're looking for temperature protection, having that cap on is going to very definitely hold that warm air around the plants much better. Okay. Now, what do you think about drip tape? Um, It is very inexpensive, and it is very effective for a season or two. But realize the thing they made that drip tape for was uh, sugar cane was what I think it was the main thing it was originally designed for. And they put it down for one season, they pull it up and throw it away, and then they put fresh down the next year. So it's not like the pressure-compensated tubing that you can leave on and it'll go on working for years. Drip tape is really designed for one season, maybe two seasons at most. But uh, what it does, it does well. It just doesn't last very long. Well, I have some of the uh, tubing that you're speaking of, uh I didn't use it last year, but I used it the year before, and I found that uh, it didn't seem like it was watering enough. Uh, You may just not be leaving it run long enough. What I found, and I did some interesting digging to determine this, but uh, it just makes that little round wet spot on the surface, but it's like a cone, you know, an inverted cone underneath. It spreads out by the time it's down um, you know, six inches into the ground, it is probably spread eight inches in all directions. So you got overlap from one emitter to the next. Uh, but I will definitely agree. I, I let mine run for usually an hour and a half, two hours at a time to feel like I've watered things thoroughly. It, you can't run it for 15 minutes. That doesn't do the trick. Well, I would let mine run all, all night. Uh, well, and, uh, uh, I guess I, I just didn't dig down to... to that, that's what I would do. And you have to judge your soil and your own situation because every place is unique. But uh, I, you know, I thought the same thing. I looked at and I'm just looking at one little wet spot, you know, and there are six inches of dry soil between wet spots. And I'm thinking, man, this isn't doing the job. So I got my spading fork out and turned it over and found out, wow, there's a lot more moisture in the soil than I anticipated. So give that a try and see what you find. Now, some of my onions are getting uh, uh, brown spots around the edges. Is that from lack of water, or could that be something else? That could be a mite of some sort. Um, you, you getting spots on the leaves? No, it just around the edge. Uh, it just sort of seems like it dies around the edge. Mm, it could be lack of water. But I would be tempted, since onions, you know, are not attracting bees and things like that, I'd be tempted to give them a little spraying with spinosad soap or something because uh, uh, we've had the kind of weather when uh, both thrips and some of the mites can be an issue on onions. And uh, um, I'd be on the safe side. I love my onions too much. And uh, with this cool weather, the problem is not likely to persist but when we you know when we get back up with upper 70s 80s degrees that's that's not typical for this time of year and we start seeing some bug problems it sounds to me more like an insect problem than a water issue and i found the 1015s are just going crazy but uh the others uh seem to be struggling especially the red onions 
They're the yeah. slowest. Yeah, they are definitely the slowest. But uh, your 1015s are always the fastest growing. They're the sweetest onions. And unfortunately, they have the, the shortest shelf life. But uh, they're always going to be, you know, the yellows are going to be half as fast and the, the reds are going to be probably a fourth as fast. Uh, you're not going to have real decent-sized onions until, oh, gosh, probably June on your yellows and reds, whereas you may have, uh, or I mean your whites and your reds. But on the yellow onions like the 1015s, you're going to have big harvestable onions probably by April on those things. Now, uh, I told you about a fig tree several months ago that uh, I thought was was dead, but I think that it's still alive. In fact, it did start greening up before we had the cold spell mm-hmm. a month or so ago. Right. And now it's it's not, but uh, it never has produced, and I've had it about three years. Uh, do you anticipate that that's ever going to do something for me? If you've given it good care for three years and it's not producing, I'd wave a chainsaw at it at the very least and threaten it substantially. I imagine it's alive, and I, you can dump some some mulch over it, but uh, three years' time, and I know you're a good gardener, if you haven't coaxed some good production out of that three years, I'd be planting a new plant. Okay. All right. Well, very good. I appreciate you, Bob, and uh, you have a great day. You do the same, Sid. It's good to hear from you. Thank Thank you. you. Uh, Bye. All right. Straight back to the phone lines, and Sam's up first. Good morning, Sam. Uh, good morning, sir. How you doing? Uh, it's going to be a beautiful day. Great start to it. All right. Well, this is kind of your fault. <laughs> Guilty as uh, charged. What did I do? <laughs> well, you've got me interested in gardening. So uh, I kind of started listening to your show uh, quite a bit here lately. But I've got a big problem. I don't have any soil where I live. Okay. Uh, so am I just am I just pretty much restricted to uh, just raised beds? Well, when you say you have no soil, are you sitting on rock or are you sitting on lousy soil? Uh, rock, mainly. Yeah. Then raised beds, uh, the only other option is to move, and that's probably not a realistic no, idea. Just, we just moved here, so. Yeah. Uh, the nice thing is, you know, there there are many ways to, in effect, garden in raised beds. You can actually physically build raised beds with uh you know, rock or with, you know, treks or something like that that's not going to rot away. There are also some very economically priced, what they call big bag beds, which are a fabric material, very lightweight, not expensive, and you can fill those with soil. That's what I grow sweet potatoes in because I don't want them to, you know, be coming up where I don't know where they are, 20 feet away from the main plant. So the good news is, yes, you're going to have to basically garden raised beds, but uh, the good news is also that you're not going to have to go out and spend a fortune on expensive trays or containers or fancy self-watering systems, things like that. Anything you can do, and it depends on what you're going to grow. Some things you can grow in six inches of soil. Some things you do need to have, you know, 18 inches of soil, but... uh, um, it, it, to me, it's kind of like tomato cages. Tomato cages are expensive. When I first started using them, I figured I could afford six a year. And so I just bought a few more every year. And all of a sudden I've got more tomato cages than I ever need. And I grow them for, you know, use them for growing beans up and things like that. So y- you don't have to convert your entire yard into a raised bed garden all at once. But, uh, 
Um, you will want to, as you've discovered, once you start growing and you find it successful, and especially if you're getting into vegetables, things taste so much better and are so much better, you will want to continue to expand. But, uh, yeah, the bad news is I'm afraid you are pretty much going to be limited to raised bed gardens to grow many crops. Now, there are some things you can actually grow in hanging baskets. Um, I know <laughs> and I was talking about this last week, and an old cousin who was not real conscious of the image of the neighborhood, so to speak. Uh, thank goodness he lived on a big lot, and you couldn't see much of his property. But he'd, he'd go out and get old tires and pile them three deep and fill them with soil, and that was his idea of a raised bed. Not what I would do, but uh, you can be creative in how you create those raised beds. Okay. And one other little question. Are quail droppings good for uh, for composting? Did you say quail? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Absolutely. Most all birds, um, some of them better than others, but yeah, quail is is just fine. Uh, it's actually, in the case of quail, probably just fine in, in its very raw state. Uh, better still if you compost it for a little while and maybe, you know, mix some uh, ground leaves or things like that in with it. But no, that that's an excellent source of nutrition for anything in your garden, flowers or uh, vegetables. Already sounds great. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Sam. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again, certainly. Okay, Paula's up next. Good morning, Paula. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Um, I have three questions, and I'll try and be brief. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, two, three years ago, um, I replaced the grass uh, from my uh, front fence to the back of my house with mulch. Okay. Um, because I just the only thing it's used for is to walk from what the gate to the back. Okay. And I want to spend the money to water grass and, and stuff, but it hasn't worked out very well. Uh, it's prolific with weeds every spring. <laughs> but the other problem I have is I, we have a lot of outdoor neighborhood cats and uh-huh. they, um, it's their litter box. Sure. Um, so I wondered what I could put there instead that it'd be low maintenance and not require watering and all. I'm not, um, I have to take the lawnmower back there. Sure. And I'm not really wanting a ground cover because they like, the snakes like ground cover. <laughs> <laughs> Sound like an ad of mine who used to say every snake's dangerous because she's liable to hurt herself trying to get away from it. Um, yeah, and I don't like snakes, so uh, do you have any suggestions? Well, you know, the weed issue is pretty easy to control if you simply get a, you know, one of these little pump-up sprayers and make your mixture of uh, vinegar and orange oil, two vinegar, ounces of orange oil. Yeah, and, I use that. And that. Uh, this year, however, they um, migrated into my grass, mm-hmm. which hasn't helped. They've just stayed in the mulch sure. uh, up until this year, and now they're migrating into the grass, which I can't use the orange oil on, but I guess just keep them mowed. Right. And um, uh, if it's not a big area, I will tell you, because, you know, lawnmowers can be an issue to to start and move around and things like that. I use one of those, uh, and it's one of the steel products, uh, uh, one of the lithium-ion battery-powered trimmers is what I actually mow a lot of my yard with when it's all weeds like it is right now. But, you know, they're they're... There are a lot of different choices. They all come with positives and negatives. Uh, I think decayed granite makes a you know a very good mulch, and we actually have a parking lot uh, of decayed granite just because we didn't want concrete or asphalt. 
and um, you will have a few weeds, but you will not have the number that you will have in mulch, and it will not be as attractive to the neighborhood kitty cats. I mean, hard to blame them. It's just the nicest, softest place that uh, that they can go to do their business. But um, the nice thing about mulch is soft to walk on. You never have mud issues. Uh, but like you've discovered, it has some downside as well. Um, if I were not wanting to have ground covers or anything like that, uh, yeah, decayed granite probably would be my choice you know, for a non-living thing. Now, do not waste your money on these uh, weed block fabrics and things like that. They don't work, and they totally ruin the soil underneath them. But uh, there's no one really easy answer. Uh, the decayed granite, you'll track a little bit of it in, and it can be hard on the floor, so be sure you have a good doormat. But it does eliminate the issue with mud. It uh, eliminates a lot of issues. And if I were going with a something just on the surface of the ground to get rid of the mud, but, you know, no maintenance, yeah, decayed granite is probably what I would go with. Okay, I have a hearing loss, and I think you're saying decayed. Decayed or decomposed granite uh, or granite sand. It goes by all of those names. Uh, I buy it from Stone and Soil Depot, you know, by the yard. Uh, You can probably get it at most nurseries in 40-pound bags. But if you've got a very big area, it's certainly worth getting it in bulk. And uh, most of your material yards, I'm sure, will carry it. I just... I like dealing with Stone and Soil Depot because they they give you prompt delivery and reasonable prices, and they're nice people. Now, is that the same as crushed granite? Yes. Okay. It's all it all comes out of the Fredericksburg area. Crushed granite, but then the weeds grow through it. Well, you won't have nearly as many weeds as you have in the mulch, and you know, in that case, um, it it will pack over time, and you'll have fewer weeds. But in just a very few minutes with your vinegar and orange oil, you should be able to take care of whatever weeds come up. It's not going to be like the issue that it was in mulch. Okay. Okay, my next question is, uh, can you recommend some blooming flowers for a pot, uh, mostly shade, uh, almost 100% shade. It gets a little bit in the morning when the sun comes up, but uh, that the deer won't eat. Oh, that's tough. When we get a little bit warmer, uh, periwinkles will do very well, or vinca, as it's sometimes called, not the vinca ground cover, but uh, uh, what I guess they call it, Madagascar periwinkle. Still a little too cold for those. But as we, where you're looking for something to be pretty all summer, periwinkle is the most deer-resistant. I'm not going to call it deer-proof, but it's the most deer-resistant flower. And if you're not just overrun with deer, they'll leave it alone. Okay. Comes in a lot of um, colors, very, very easy to maintain, but it's got to be warm when you plant them. Okay. Um, I have a sidewalk that's broken up and it's elevated. Uh-huh. And it makes me nervous for liability reasons. Um, I, I saw where there was a concrete raising. Um, they used two methods. One was with slurry concrete, which I'm sure wouldn't be good to pump under there because mm-hmm. it's over two huge oak trees. That's what's raising the walk. Right. And the other one was a polyurethane. Uh-huh. Uh, would that injure the trees? No, it should not bother the trees. But choose your company carefully. Um, I, you know, Southwest Exteriors is a really, really reputable company, and they do a lot of the different coatings so to speak now like i say it's not going to totally solve the problem because as long as those trees are alive and growing 
they are going to continue to push that sidewalk up. But if you're looking for something to create a smoother, safer walking surface, uh, call Scott or one of the good people over Southwest Exteriors and let them uh, maybe email them a picture or something like that and let them tell you what uh, their solution would be. Okay. Um, And one last question. When can I plant caladiums in a pot? Uh, if you can keep the pot good and warm, you can do it as soon as you get the bulbs. But you, they can't be outside till the soil temperature is up uh, close to 70 degrees. 70 degrees? Yeah. I didn't know if it was different for pots. So Yeah. Um, pots are in okay. the ground either one. It's too early at this point for sure. Okay. Um, I appreciate all your help. Always a pleasure, Paula. It's going to be fun today. It's going to be a little different subject, but it's going to be a lot of fun. We get straight back to those lines, and I say good morning, Susan. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I am. Um, we're new here, and I was at your um, your clinic last week at your nursery and bought two bags of, um, one of them was the Medina product that's made for you guys, right. and then a bag of compost. Uh-huh. Got home, didn't leave it in the bag, So, and then on Sunday, because <laughs> the man at your store told me, just feed it like you feed chickens, you know, just out, mm-hmm. out in your bushes, out in your bushes. Great, got my whole yard done, and my dogs have been licking it ever since. Oh man! So, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm reluctant to do the compost because of that, and then curious how I address that moving forward. Well, number one, it's not harmful to the dogs, and some dogs like it. Some dogs don't. It won't give them cancer like some of the some of the chemical things do. Um, I, you know, I recommend. Uh, it won't burn, but I do recommend a thorough watering, which will make it much less attractive to the dogs. Now, the compost, they may want to roll in. They won't eat it. But uh, you're talking to a person who lives with two labs, so believe me, I know. <laughs> I love the cartoon somebody showed me or the picture somebody showed me. It was of a man out walking a fairly large dog, and he, the caption was, Until I acquired a lab, I did not realize how much of the world was edible. So, yeah, it 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 is an issue. One thing that you can do, um, and uh, it's you know it, it is a poultry litter based fertilizer, and so some dogs do find it. If there's a special area they really like, go to Sam's or somewhere and get a uh, you know a big cheap thing of cayenne pepper or something like that, and just you know sling a few handfuls of that around. Uh, that will keep them from wanting to sniff it or eat it, but um, it it is a it can be an issue with you know almost any organic fertilizer. Compost should not be anything like that. I mean, compost is uh, um, it, it, it's it, there's not really anything attractive in there. Now there are some dogs who will eat anything, but uh, I've my labs have never paid any attention to compost and. Uh, I guess I would say that maybe the first or second time I used the fertilizer, they did have to go sample it, and they've left it alone for the past several years. I don't know whether they've grown out of their desire for it or they simply decided it wasn't as good as they thought it was on first taste. But I would not be I would not be at all concerned about the compost. Okay, well, because one of my dogs jumped up in the back of the car before I got the compost out and was rolling on the bag. <laughs> And I thought, oh, my, this is a whole new game. 
Well, you know, it's it's I guess the downside of uh, of getting away from the the toxic stuff. I just you know I have the pleasure of doing the show with Doctor Kirby on Sundays, and um, he sees so many animal cancers and things like that that are without doubt brought on by some of the herbicides and some of the things that they put in the other types of fertilizers. So I guess given the choice, I would rather have a little indigestion. But um, uh, you might try even before you take it out of the bag, sprinkling a little bit of, uh, you know, hot pepper flakes or something like that. And I've been told that that, um, that that will very definitely, you know, solve the problem um, the other thing is putting it out, even though it doesn't have to be watered in, usually after a good watering, uh, they will totally ignore it. Okay. Okay. Well, I will give it a go. And let me report back to me on, on how you and the pups do with it. Maybe I'll bring them to see you and they can, <laughs> you can experience them in person. <laughs> you know, uh, our, our two rules around the nursery is dogs are welcome. They can't chase the cats or pee on the plants. But other than that, we are very, very dog friendly and we have a lot of dogs come through the nursery. So we'd love to see them. All right. Well, thank you very much, Bob. You're welcome, Susan. Thank you. All right, uh, Greg's the only person I've got waiting, so if you're getting a busy signal, now's a good time to dial 210-599-5555. Good morning, Greg. Good morning. Morning, sir. How are you today? Ah, it's going to be a beautiful day out there. Yes, it is. I'm still laughing at the uh, the lab cartoon. <laughs> I, I had labs. That is so true. <laughs> well, the other one that my business partner gets tired of me talking about is uh, these two go to work with us every day, and... Uh, but we have the sign in the office that says, Caution, dog can't hold his liquor, L-I-C-K-E-R. That's also <laughs> very true of a lab, as I'm sure you are well aware. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I got a couple quick questions for you. Okay. Um, the first one is about as far as uh, spring pruning. Um, you think it's all right to go ahead and start on some of the plants, or should I hold off a couple more weeks? Where were you last Saturday morning when we talked about this for an hour and a half? I oh gosh, I'm, unfortunately, I was out of town. Yeah, um, I think. Excuse me, I think you're fine on most things, but recognize that you do not want to prune spring flowering plants like Indian hawthorns or spirea or Confederate jasmine. Well, I guess maybe. Excuse me, got some in my throat. Uh, Confederate's not so bad, but primrose, jasmine, um, anything that blooms in early spring, it blooms on the wood that it grew last fall. So if you prune those things now, you're sacrificing all your flowers. Same thing would be true of mount laurels and red buds and all. So spring flowering plants, we let them bloom first, and then we prune them. In the case of roses, climbing roses, most climbing roses bloom on last year's wood. So we're going to let the climbers bloom before we prune them. And they don't usually need much pruning anyway. Bush roses, uh, yes, very definitely prune those things. Green shrubs like pittosporum, viburnum, um, you know, boxwood, just all the basic green shrubs. Yeah, now is a real good time to prune them. Summer flowering shrubs like crepe myrtle that bloom on new wood instead of on old wood, yes, it's very definitely time to uh, prune your crepe myrtles. And if you've got any pruning to do on your trees, it's also a great time. Uh, In the fruit orchard, peaches and plums, not so much pruning but thinning. That needs to be done and done in the very near future, although we never prune except for dead wood. We don't prune pears or apples because it makes them more susceptible uh, to some disease issues. So, um, 
Okay. There's a lot more to pruning than just getting the shears out, but in general, yes, summer flowering shrubs and uh, evergreen shrubs, you're welcome to prune today. I think it'd be a great thing to do. But those spring blooming things, let them flower first and then do your pruning immediately after the flowers fade before the new growth starts. Okay. Cool. Um, next question, real quick on uh, plumeria. Yes. I normally in the past have uh, just kept them in the pots that uh-huh. I had them in. And uh, the spring, make new cuttings and do that, but bring them in during the uh, the cold. Well, this past year, I pulled them out of the pots, and um, I only have like uh, about eight or nine. I just kind of put them all in a giant <laughs> rubber mesh. Only, trash. yeah, uh huh. Yeah. Well, I started with one. Yeah, I know the feeling. Pretty good. <laughs> yeah. But my question is, um, do I need to? Because there's a nest of roots on each one of these. I just pulled them out mm-hmm. and put them in that big. Uh, Rubbermaid. Do I need to uh, replant that, or can I just cut that off at the base, like I do the, the the cuttings, and just stick them in the dirt and go? You will have more flowers, and you will have stronger plants if you let them come out. Now, if you've got, if the roots seem, you know, almost brittle, uh, you may want to trim them back a bit. But uh, you're you're shocking the plant, and in order to you know, root and do all these things, you're taking away a lot of the stored nutrients that would contribute to more flowers. So um, planting them as they are, they can, some of those roots are still alive and those roots will branch and come out more quickly and you'll allow the plant to conserve a lot of its stored energy, which it can then put into spring growth and flowering. So, you know, you've, you've learned how tough and durable they are and how easy it is to propagate new ones. But uh, as you've probably also learned, those new ones that you propagate are pretty reluctant bloomers uh, the first year. And as beautiful and fragrant as plumerias are, we want all the flowers we can get. So I'd pretty much pot them up as is. I wouldn't even cut away all of the roots, even if they seem dead. They're going to help to anchor the plant in the pot. And uh, they're certainly not causing any problems. So, no, I'm I'm not going to be whacking them off and starting over. I'm going to be potting them up. Uh, watering them, fertilizing them, and looking forward to more flowers this spring and summer. Okay. And you said just uh, feel around for any of the, the brittle? Yeah, anything that's real brittle or anything that's real spongy, um, you know, a nice, firm, solid root. I mean, you can, if you've got, if you've gone from one to eight or ten plants, you're pretty familiar with them, and you reach down and just a good, you know, just a firm pinch of that root is going to tell you whether it's good solid tissue or whether it's dead tissue. Uh, I would okay. cut away a lot of the dead, but I'd even the dead, I'd leave some there just because it's going to help anchor the plant in the pot while it starts putting on its new roots. Sounds good. Thank you so much, sir. And one other thing, if you find that you, you know, really like uh, growing the plumerias and things, invest in a couple of propagating mats. I don't know how big you know, your pots are going to be, but when you pot them up and you want to encourage them to grow new roots as quickly as possible, man, it makes a big difference having that bottom heat. Uh, you just be amazed at how, what's that? I'm sorry, what was it called? They're called propagating mats. You know, up north they have those uh, electric doormats that stay warm so that the ice and snow melt off. It's sort of a much more refined version of that. It's a thin, durable uh, rubber mat, but it has heating cables inside of it.
but they don't ever get really hot. But, boy, for rooting cuttings, for getting bulbs off to a strong start, for getting things, just give them a little head start in the spring. Uh, if plants' roots stay warm, the tops can get quite cool, but, man, it'll make those roots grow, and that's going to give you just incredibly stronger plants uh, more quickly as we move back into warm weather. Sounds good. Good questions, Greg. Enjoy your plumeria. Thank you much. You have a wonderful weekend. You do the Take same, care. sir. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. Looking very closely at uh, the time people have been waiting, it is going to be Jerry and Faye, and then it's going to be Joe and Robert. So uh, let's get started with Jerry. Good morning, Jerry. So I think I hit the wrong one there. This is the one Good I need morning. to do. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning. Good morning. Did I get through this time? Yes, you did. All right, great. Uh, this wasn't my original question, which is almost a follow-up to the last guy, but I noticed you mentioned in the Rhonda's Nature's Way ad that uh, they were on I-10 across from, at Callahan across from Sprouts. In in that shopping center. They're not right across from Sprouts, but that's a good landmark to start with. Okay, yeah, because Sprouts <laughs> I don't think is there anymore, so I, was, I, I had a hard <laughs> I didn't find them last time I was in that area. I wasn't there, and I thought maybe Rhonda's wasn't there either. No, Rhonda's still there. It's been six weeks, I guess, since I was over there, so things may have changed, but uh, Anyway, you'll find her, and if you uh, if you have more problems, call them, and they'll they'll give you just turn by turn directions. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah, what I was calling about was the uh, oak wilt. Yes, I know that you're not supposed to trim like from February to June. I don't agree with that at all. I think you can trim any time, but I think you need to seal. It doesn't have to be pruning paint; it can be any paint. But I think you need to seal every wound, no matter how large, no matter how small. But uh, it's uh, I, it's just the the thing that people are you know they're they're trying to pick a when the highest probability of having beetles and having the uh, uh, what we call spore mats and dead red oaks. But uh, there's just no safe time to prune. But I don't think there's any bad time <laughs> to prune either, as long as you seal those wounds. Hmm. Is that, even the, even the real small ones, like if it's a dead branch. No, now dead branches are different uh, because you know the what happens is a spore gets transferred to the wound normally by the little beetles that feed on tree sap, but there's no sap with a dead branch. Now, if you cut right. all the way right back up to the branch collar, you could nick the branch collar. Anything that's going to leak sap could be a site for infection, but uh, pruning dead wood, no, that there's no danger whatsoever in that. Right, it's just just any place where you get the live tissue. Exposed. Yes, sir. And I'm afraid that's depends. That's whether it's pencil size or whether it's as you know big around as your arm. Okay, well, well, th- that helps a lot because calendar came around too fast. I still got plenty to trim. And yes, sir. I, I was wondering if if I painted it right away, if it would still be okay during that. Oh, season, absolutely, so. absolutely. The you know, and I recommend that you paint. You know, you prune and paint one wound at a time because. Uh, no matter how careful you are, you say, okay, I made seven wounds. Oops, I can only find six of them. Yeah. Well, the beetles yeah, well, will... I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> been there, there, are other, there are other things you can do to prevent oak wilt. That's one of the things I'm going to talk about in my seminar this morning. We're finding that uh, this uh, process, uh, which is referred to as either systemic acquired resistance or systemic induced resistance, 
uh, with some very simple things. We can make trees pretty much oak wilt proof. So if you've got a few minutes this morning, 945 seminar time, and that's one of two or three interesting topics we're going to be talking about. Wow, that sounds wonderful. I'll keep that in mind for sure. Yes, sir. That sounds great. Well, that that's all I need for now. Well, <laughs> get out, get out, get, get some pruning done. <laughs> get some more back. There you go. It's a good day to do it. Yes, sir. Appreciate it, Jerry. You have a good day, and I will. Let me jump around, and take these in order. Faye is up next. Good morning, Faye. Uh, good morning, Bob. Good, good morning. Mor- good morning. Um, Springtime's. Uh, we have it over here, but uh, <laughs> today we're getting. <laughs> May not be there Wednesday and Thursday, but today is very spring-like. Yes, ma'am. Well, uh, our uh, we had early freeze and uh, got rid of all our leaves and so forth. And then uh, yeah, it's been pretty decent. But uh, right now, our our coldest weather right here seems to come down to about thirty-eight degrees. Mm-hmm. So um, we're that's kind of where we were. Quick question on snakes. This is a utopia for snakes, evidently, and I just kind of like to be a little more alert as to, I know that they're down here, they don't necessarily sleep through the cold, mm-hmm. I mean, through the winter. I see live ones out there right. uh, in the winter. Um, kind of what is the temperature range, though, from when they're active and less active? Well, Maybe. snakes are cold-blooded, poikilothermic, if you want to impress your biology friends, but Um, the warmer it becomes, the more active they can be. You may see them out sunning, even at temperatures, say, in the 50s or so, but they're going to be, you know, pretty what we call torpid. They're not moving very quickly. By the time we get into the middle 60s, uh, into the 70s, they're going to become much more active, but... uh, um, I know from, you know, my time in the desert that, uh, we'd talk about rattlesnake dens and things like that. And even in the middle of the winter, a sunny, warm afternoon, the snakes would be able to get out on the rock, soaking up the sun's energy and warming up. So yeah, you can see snakes almost any time, but are they going to be active? Are they going to be moving actively about? Not unless the temperature has been you know, above 70 degrees for several hours. But uh, um, realizing that it doesn't take a snake very long to warm up, uh, you've had some 70-degree days just like we have in San Antonio. Now, I don't believe that we are warm enough yet, and I don't know if rattlesnakes are an issue to you, but those of us in the hill country, we always have to be aware of rattlesnakes. Rattlesnakes tend to spend the winter congregating in in uh, large groups in what they call dens, and then the male snakes may move as much as uh, six, eight, ten miles away from that denning area, you know, for the summer months, and then they move back. I we are not warm enough that the snakes are actively moving out away from their winter quarters, so to speak. But a warm afternoon, yeah, you can certainly see just about any kind of snake out and about. But uh, cold morning, you don't have anything to worry about. Chilly evening, you don't have anything to worry about. Uh, even if you do find a snake or pick up a you know chunk of firewood and there's a snake coiled up underneath it, it's going to be moving a lot slower than you are. Good. Yeah, good. Well, I appreciate you going over that, Bob, because um, it's really part of life down here. <laughs> and, 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 uh, <laughs> Everywhere, unless you live in Ireland or uh, New Zealand or Hawaii, you know. I guess, <laughs> yeah, there are a few places don't have snakes, but most of us do. Well, uh, the other thing uh, down here in the swamp is when there's 
let's say I have standing water in a glass jar or something. Mm-hmm. It uh, it uh, the the is it dries up the water. It leaves a white um, residue. Right. Um, what does that mean about my environment? It means that you've got minerals in the water. Uh, it could be one of many different things. Uh, here in our area, it would be calcium. But just any any water out there, you have dissolved minerals in that water. You could take a sample of your water to a testing lab, and they would run it uh, for you know a lot of the different different minerals that could be there, especially the ones that could cause problems. But uh, um, nobody lives where they have absolutely pure water unless you're, you know, drinking from a mountain spring somewhere, you know, where it's just coming off of a glacier or something like that. We all have some minerals in the water. Uh, The minerals that will be left behind as that water evaporates will vary from place to place. But it's just minerals. It's not anything to be concerned about. If you happen to be a water heater, you should be very concerned about it, or a toilet, or a dishwasher, or things like that, because you would be affected by all that stuff. But as far as drinking water and other things like that, uh, if your water is, you know, certified, um, and and you know it's free of uh, heavy metals and coliform bacteria, uh, it's not an issue. What you're seeing there is simply mineral residues. Well, that, thank you for going over that, and I think the sample idea would be uh, interesting. So, yeah, call call a well that. driller. Call a well driller mm-hmm. in your area, even though you don't need well service, because those guys know where the testing labs are. If you are in an area where you have a groundwater district, and not all of Texas does, some counties have opted not to have that. But call your uh, groundwater district, and they can sure point you the right direction because uh, they sample the water from, I know we sample water from a bunch of different wells and test it twice a year just to be sure that our aquifers are staying clean and free of problems. But either a well driller or groundwater district will tell you places that you can send your water for analysis. And basic analysis is going to be 10 or 15 bucks. It's not expensive. If you start looking at lots and lots and lots of different things, uh, yeah, you can spend some money on a water test. But, you know, regular water test doesn't cost any more than lunch these days. Well, that's great. And I'll follow up on that. Um, uh, The only other questions I had uh, right off my uh, memory here is uh, when do I put in seeds for uh, zinnias, marigolds, etc.? Uh, zinnias and marigolds, I'd be looking at soil temperatures, 65 to 70 degree range. Um, I, I've gotten to where I think it's safer to talk about soil temperature than calendars. And if you don't have a little soil probe thermometer, get one. Typically, middle of March is going to be the answer in your part of Texas. But uh, a little thermometer that you can check soil temperatures with will be your best indicator of all. And then our summer seeds, uh, what are some of the first things I want to be sure and have plenty of? Well, the ones that you just mentioned, that you just mentioned, zinnias and marigolds, uh, coxcomb, amaranthus, uh, and, uh, of course, there are a number of salvias that can be grown from seed. There are a number of... uh, Flowering vines like the so-called cardinal climber, um, those are all good starting points. Things you want to stay away from real early are things like periwinkles, which really, whether you're planting plants or seeds, you can do either way on them. But that soil needs to be pretty much hot before you plant them. Succulents like purslane and portulaca, they want warmer soil uh, too. But golly, balsam, um, zinnias. 
uh, impatience. Uh, there's some of the old varieties you can grow from seeds, certainly marigolds, certainly the amaranthus, uh, things like that. Yeah, those would be the first ones we're putting in the ground. And our first vegetable seeds, uh, what? Um, you know, early on, probably squash and cucumbers would certainly be possibility. Bush beans will be fairly early. Uh, in the vegetable garden for seeds, you want to stay away from, of course, okra, which is a much warmer weather crop. It's a little early yet for corn, but I'd say beans, cukes, squash, those would be the those would be the first thing I'd be planting from seed. Well, you've covered all my my most important questions this morning, and thank you so much, Bob. Yeah, certainly welcome, Faye. You have a wonderful weekend, and I know we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Certainly. Goodbye. All right, back to gardening, and it is going to be Joe and Robert and Joyce, and we'll see what time we have after that. Good morning, Joe. Morning, sir. How are you? Uh, it's just going to be a beautiful day. Looking forward to getting out in it, doing a fun seminar, spending the day working at the nursery. It's just, you know, my Saturday, and I love it. Yes, sir. Uh, you were talking about the oatmeal a while ago. What's the recipe for the cornmeal that you make to treat it? Well, the, um, you know, we used to just use dry cornmeal, and it's not the cornmeal that's the magic. It's a trichoderma fungus that grows on the cornmeal. And the modern thinking from the arborist out there, who are the people I rely on, are approximately one to two cups of cornmeal to a five-gallon bucket of water. Let it soak overnight and then a minimum of two hours, but overnight's probably better. And then just pour that water. Uh, it doesn't have to be out around the drip line. They say the trees actually take up the majority of the material within 10 feet of the trunk. So, you know, small tree up to maybe eight inches in diameter, probably one five-gallon bucket is going to be enough. Bigger tree, two or three buckets. A giant tree, maybe four or five buckets. But Roughly one to two cups of uh, whole ground cornmeal to five gallons of water, soaked for a few hours, and then just poured over that area of the roots and uh, uh, create something we call systemic induced resistance, which not only stops oak wilt, but many other diseases as well. Okay. Uh, and uh, the deal with the molasses and the, and the mesquite and the diesel? The diesel is what kills. It is not organic, but it's a whole lot less toxic than Remedy and some of these other things they want to sell you. And by the way, even Remedy, they mix it with diesel. But uh, it's just a matter of the amount that it takes to, you know, thoroughly saturate uh, the stump. A small tree, probably a cup. A bigger tree, more than that. But uh, the thing that I, you know, the only way that I would use it is then to follow it up with uh, molasses, uh, you know, garret juice, something that's going to help break down and get rid of the diesel. It's one of these things that's nasty stuff to lo to use, but uh, it does biodegrade. And uh, like I say, it's um, other than something that just physically rips it out of the ground, it's a whole lot better than the chemical toxins they use to kill it. Now, small trees, there are other options. And on mesquite, one thing about mesquite is it, it produces something from the roots. We refer to it as a leliopathy, which means a big mesquite will not let little small mesquites grow up around it. The seed simply won't germinate. And um, I know on my ranch, until the trees get big enough to start making a lot of seed on their own, I tend to leave the bigger trees because I found that if you cut them down, all of a sudden you get a regrowth of this horrible 
thorny, brushy area that you can't walk through, much less work around. So I'm not necessarily suggesting that you rip every tree out there out. And uh, the cedar eater folks do have a machine that uh, if you have uh, a tree, it actually latches onto the tree and rips it out of the ground, which pretty much eliminates it. So there are other options. But where you've got a tree that you feel like you need to uh, to kill, cutting it off close to ground level and then the diesel followed by the molasses um, is is the much more acceptable way of getting rid of it once and for all. Okay. How much molasses? Uh, about as much diesel as you used. If you're, uh, I, I mix my molasses, maybe two parts water to one part molasses. If I used a cup of diesel, I'd probably use about a cup of that mix around over the, over the area that you treated. Okay. And also we transplanted some rose bushes last week into a bed from pots. How long do we have to wait before, before I can fertilize them? Mm, until I go off the air at nine o'clock. <laughs> That's what I figured, but yeah. I wanted to make sure that I didn't try to you know, put it on there and burn them. No, as long as organic fertilizers don't burn. And what, what we mean when we burn, we talk about it just creates a sudden water uptake. Organic fertilizers don't do that. You could have done it. Uh, you could have worked some soil, some food into the soil before you planted. You could have fertilized the day you planted. By now, they need to be fertilized. So get it done today if you can. I appreciate it, sir. Thanks for everything you do, Bob. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Joe. Thank you, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. Bye. All right. Uh, Robert is up next. Good morning, Robert. Good morning, Bob. Good I morning, sir. The thing I need to ask you is can you hear me okay? I can hear you just fine, and I I have not spent any time at the computer. I saw you email me the other day, and I just haven't sat down to answer back. I apologize for that, but I hear you just fine. Not 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 a problem at all. Uh, the reason I ask is my kid finally badgered me into getting a hearing aid, and sort now I'm <laughs> talking talking through my phone through the hearing aid. Oh goodness! Well, uh, you don't sound quite like yourself, but it's recognizable, and I I hear you just fine. Well, instead of me saying what what what, every time people I'm talking to say what what what, so I, technology's got some got some improvements. To my be my quick yet, my quick story that I love is the fellow went to the doctor, got hearing aids, and he went back to see the doctor. Oh, a month or so later, and the doctor said, "Well, is your family just thrilled with your new ability to hear?" And he says, "You know, I haven't told them. I just sit around and listen, and I've changed my will three times in the past month." <laughs> wonderful yes sir so, what's going on today so the the uh the message uh, earlier message so this is going to be a continuation of uh, of um cornmeal uh-huh uh, now I, I heard what you just said about uh using it in liquid form right um but uh it, it's is it is it preferable to to put it into water or is it okay just to spread it out like chicken feed oh no it's fine to just throw it out like chicken feed so long as you don't have chickens and right. you well, know so as <laughs> <laughs> long as you don't have uh you know the feral hogs and things like that that will come rip it up and i know a golf course had put it out one time for a uh, fungus disease on grass and then the deer came in and their hooves tore up the greens too much so uh barring issues with critters it's just as effective to put it out just scattering it out and i have to say when i have done that and i've got many friends who who did that before we started talking about using the liquid they did put it out in the vicinity of the drip line with great success both in curing and in preventing oak wilt so uh, 
in the dry form, what is the uh, preferred ratio? I, I think I had um, done a little bit of research and got got some guidance that it 10 to 20 pounds per 1,000 square feet. Is well, that right? that's what I would say if you were treating, you know, grass diseases. On trees, I would tell you figure about a pound per inch of trunk diameter. You've got a 10-inch diameter tree. I'm probably going to use 10 pounds of cornmeal. 20-inch diameter, I'm going to use 20 pounds or a little bit more. But that, uh, you know, that 20 to 30 pounds per thousand square feet. That's more if you're going after brown patch and some of the other diseases of grasses and things. Trees, I I prefer to just think of it as one to two pounds per inch. Well, that that's very helpful. We 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 probably got it about right for the shrubs and the grass, but not enough for the big live oak. So I'll put some more down. There you go. Uh, just just one quick thing. I've heard you talk several times about um, the quality of life for growing things. And um, are are you familiar with the Kelvin scale? Yes. Okay. I, I won't go into it then if you know about it already, but. That's that's generally the easy way to buy your bulbs. Uh, yes, just by by counting measurement. It just tells you tells you the the wavelength of the light, basically, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's for somebody with a technical mind like yours. It's by far the easiest thing to do. Well, they, all the bulbs come with the Kelvin scale on it, right? And, uh, you know. I assume what you're wanting is the, what they call daylight. I don't quite understand that, but up to 4,500, 4, 5,000 range. Yeah, the, and, and if you're looking at it in... 3,035. Right. And if you're looking at it in colors, that's going to be the blue end of the spectrum, and that's right. the only portion of the spectrum that activates the chlorophyll, which is what photosynthesis is based on. Well, I, um, that's all I've got, and uh, please give us Hannah, a pat, we, we miss both of you. I met your new lab, but uh, looking forward to it one of these days. <laughs> well, actually, Roberta's that lives with me, but Hannah and I are great friends. We miss Mojo, but you give Levon. I presume Levon is still as active and crazy as always, so uh, uh, next time you... eating the cornmeal. <laughs> <laughs> Robert's always good to hear from you. Give Susie a hug for Thank me, you. and we'll talk again. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Bye. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. Good morning, Joyce. Good morning, Mr. Bob. Well, good morning. I have, um, I'm going to go with my two most critical questions because I know time is a factor. I'm late this morning. So you tell me if we need to take it up again tomorrow. Well, let me first of all tell you for, thank you for helping my animals send me valentine card and everybody i know has laughed it has to be either hannah or maya that wrote the little poem roses are red violets are blue when i get hungry i think of you uh we all enjoyed that very much (laughs) oh i'm so glad (laughs) it seems so appropriate but you have such special little animals yes i do my question is about a gardenia. A friend of mine gave me a lovely gardenia bush with lots of buds and one great big, well, three-inch normal size for a large mm-hmm. uh, gardenia. Very fragrant, beautiful thing. However, it is it is completely addicted. What it is is it's three plants in a four-inch pot. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. Yeah completely root-bound and totally chemically addicted because the blue balls are still all over it. Right. So my question is, I'm going to keep it, and obviously hothouse grown, so I'm take it, going to put it in a pot and take it in and out until weather and stuff mm-hmm. gets better. Um, 
the root, when you take it out of that four-inch pot, it's just solid with roots all around it. Right. So do I scratch those or do I leave them alone? I'm going to move it up into maybe an eight- or nine-inch pot with some good soil and things and, and try to get it off of the chemicals yeah. and things. Well, if it didn't have all those buds, then I probably would loosen up that root ball a little bit. But I, in this case, I'm going to tell you, just repot it. The roots will grow out from that mass of roots, and if we mess with them too much, uh, it'll respond by dropping a lot of those buds. And I want you to enjoy every bit of fragrance and every bit of beauty from the flowers. So I'm just going to repot it, maybe maybe loosen up just the very, oh, the very bottom of the root ball just a little bit, but don't be too brutal on it. Well, that was my that was my thought also. I know you usually say to rough up and, and do yep. something or cut the roots, but because of that factor, many are very close to opening and that sure. kind of thing that I no. thought probably I should leave it alone for that. In, enjoy it, and when you repot it, if you feel like it's just too densely root-bound, when it finishes blooming, pull it back out and loosen it up and repot it. I, I think that would be probably the best solution. It's going to be a lot easier to keep water moved into that bigger pot but if you feel like it's just dense, 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 enjoy the blooms and then, then pull it up and, and work it over. Well, it isn't that bad with the roots, but it has that netting, that the root netting, that white netting just completely around the, the frame of the four-inch mm-hmm. pot, you know, that kind of thing. So I thought I'd just give it good soil. And set. My next question was, when I give it its uh, garret juice and combination of things, would it be uh, harmful or helpful to increase the one tablespoon per gallon of cider vinegar to uh, maybe two. Would that be good or bad? I wouldn't do it all at once. Um, I would maybe this time use your Garrett juice according to the label recommendations. Uh, A week from now, if you want to follow it up either with more Garrett juice or just with some dilute apple cider vinegar, that's fine. But let's just don't overdo it all at one time. I doubt it would be a problem but again, gardenias are a little delicate, and I don't want you to lose a one of those buds. Okay. Okay, that'll be fine. I, I wondered about that and thought, well, it seemed like maybe because they are a more acidic-loving thing, mm-hmm. it might be good to raise it a little bit. But you're right. Let's start. In fact, all I've done so far is just given it rainwater. Yeah. Okay. All righty. That's what I'll do because uh, I do love that phrase. <laughs> And as you well know, this is the 30-minute segment that we have the pleasure of visiting with the Dirt Doctor. We'll have time at the end of the show for a few more questions. And, of course, we do this for uh, three hours again tomorrow, just before we get to spend an hour with Dr. Kirby. So, right now, I just get to push that button right there and say, good morning, Howard Garrett. Good morning. How's everybody? Everybody is uh, riding the roller coaster. Oh, I tell you. <laughs> it's... Uh, I tell you, it's dressing layers time. You know, I start out with about five layers in the morning, and I'm down to maybe two by the afternoon. But uh looks like it's going to go on that way. We're forecast to be below freezing in the hill country again later this week. So it's just it's just typical Texas. Yep, you just go with what you get, that's for sure. So I'm how did... Mind on some... Yeah. So yeah. it's working out good for me. Well, I, I I have to agree there, but how how was the big event? How was Mother Earth News uh, last week up in Belton? Had a couple of different people that heard us talking about it on the air that drove up to hear you and uh, uh, just talked about how much they enjoyed it. So I trust it was a successful event. Well, good. I'm glad they did. Yeah, I think so. I think that uh, those events are 
uh, such that people go to them two or three times and then they think, well, I've seen all that. I'm not going to continue to go to it every year. They are cutting back on how many they have mm. uh, each year across the country. They're they're kind of transitioning over to doing specific uh, kinds of things rather than huh. uh, a big general thing. Like they're having one coming up, I think. I don't think they've had it yet at Joel Saladin's Ranch. Really? Yeah, and they're smaller events. They cost a lot more because they're, you know, hands-on, intensive kind sure. of thing. They'll probably be doing doing more of that. We might be able to get them to do something that relates to tree work, you know, planting trees properly and uncovering them and all that kind of thing at some point, or at least be part of what they're doing. So it seems to be a little bit of transition in that direction. More of a focused but, seminar time thing. Yeah, but there's uh, I've got a lot of speaking engagements uh, coming up. I got one today at Marshall Grain, and more and more people seem to be uh, getting interesting interested. I'm writing a column this week that's uh, kind of a some it's kind of the next step of something I've written about several times before with the basic theme of organophobia, why, you know, more people aren't into what we're talking about. Uh-huh. And one thing I'm adding to this one that uh, I hadn't, I don't know why I hadn't thought of it and put it in before, but sometimes people don't get into it just out of sheer laziness. They're used to doing the other thing, mm-hmm. and uh, they just like to stick with what they're doing. What kind of spurred it, Tony Manasseri sent me a, a uh, copy of a quote out of a, I think it was in his newsletter and and um, on Facebook as well, saying that you ought to be spraying all your fruit trees starting now with malathion every ten days. <laughs> and Tony Tony sent me this thing and he said, "Can you imagine eating a thin-skinned peach?" that's been sprayed with malathion every 10 days. And I think they also recommend, this person uh, especially, recommend spraying other uh, toxic chemicals as well. It's just, it, it, you know, even though you and I are in this all the time, talking about it all the time, and or into what we uh, recommend, the organic approach, you sometimes are away from it so much you think that, well, maybe people are learning, but... There's still probably the majority of the people that are reading that kind of thing and listening to it and actually doing it. Yeah, and that article is just above the article that talks about the decrease in bee populations and all the threat that that poses. And uh, it's just, I, you know, I, you just have to scratch your head. I just can't believe it all the time, but there are plenty of people. One thing I want to ask you about, your, well, you're speaking events in general, not just Mother Earth News. But are you seeing what we see in our nursery, that there are more and more young people who are really getting into this, and, boy, they are really receptive to our message, much more so than some of these people that have been, uh, you know, doing it that way for so many years. You're not going to change. But I just, every day I'm amazed at the number, and I don't like the term millennials, but uh, the number of people early 20s and and mid 20s that are just all of a sudden finding a huge love for plants and gardening and it uh, I don't know how to account for it but I'm very very thankful for it. Yeah, it's good. I'm seeing some of that too. I'm seeing a real mixture of people to be uh, honest about it, but but young people there as well. I think one thing that's 
happening is that some people are saying to themselves and their mates and everything that, you know, yeah, there's environmental problems and there's health problems and that sort of thing, but let's not just complain about it. Let's actually do something about it. So people wanting to eat clean food and all that kind of thing. We're meeting with a group of holistic doctors this coming week. We've already talked to them, and they're going to be having some events and talking about all these issues that relate to uh, health and bringing me in to talk about, you know, starting with the, the healthy food that you eat. Mm-hmm. That's a big part yeah. of the uh, puzzle. And, you know, the the uh, health issues nationally are, are becoming or are, are already the number one topic that's being discussed. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe that's going to help push push it over. There's been a lot of talk about bad-mouthing farmers lately, and I've been <laughs> I've been watching that with, and grinning a little bit because I'm not hearing a whole lot about the organic version of uh, how great the farmers are. And I agree they are, but you mean you mean it's not just a matter of putting a seed in the ground, and dumping some <laughs> soil and water on it, and then you've got your your corn? It's not that easy. That was, that was pretty good, and that <laughs> led right into uh, talking about you know what incredible uh, hard work it is to be a farmer. But if we can, going along with this, get the information uh, out that, uh, yeah, and then the next step is to get the soil healthy mm-hmm. and not talk about just uh, what kind of genetics we've got in the seed and uh, what kind of computer we've got running our big tractors and all yeah. that kind of thing. But how do you build the health in the soil so that health ends up being transferred right into the plants, to the plants, the people in the livestock and the pets and everybody else you know it's and and i have to say that you know it's small but i I had an encouraging conversation with a friend yesterday who is in the business of applying organic fertilizer to acreage and he has he says he has more and more people who since you know we've got some very basic organic fertilizers like this viatrek that's a poultry litter fertilizer and the price of that is now down as low as the chemical fertilizers. And Fred tells me that he's getting a lot of people that all of a sudden there's no economic incentive to go with the synthetic fertilizers. A lot of people that are moving into giving organics a try. And we're talking acreage. We're not talking, you know, a little backyard plot. And that just makes me feel like, you know, there is some hope. And what I'm hoping is that their neighbors will see the results and and the idea will spread and catch on. That's great. One thing related to that, we've got a home and garden show coming up in, out in Frisco, and it's going to be at the Star, which is you know a big uh, event out there, a big venue, pretty mm-hmm. fancy place. And um, they've invited me, and it's a, it's a company that we've worked with in the past with so-so success, but all of a sudden... They've gotten really interested in having uh, this organic, uh, you know, thinking as part of their event. They're actually having me speak on a weekend event, two-day event, three times. Wow. So I'm uh, kind of excited about, you know, who all we may see out there, the growth of that Frisco area. Oh, yeah. Which is mind-boggling. Yeah. Right. And you talk about young people and all and people moving in, new jobs and all that. So it may be an opportunity to get to uh, quite a quite a lot of new folks to join the natural organic uh, parade 
Well, you know, it'll be real interesting, these uh, health care practitioners that you're talking to. I've yeah. done, I've spent a lot of time researching this week. I'm going to do kind of a different seminar this morning and talk about a little bit more technical things. And uh, so I've spent a lot of time reading. I've certainly learned avoid any website that has something to sell. But one of the things that really got my attention was with the organic program, this this idea of nutrient density, that the food that we eat not only tastes better, but how important it is and, and what a good thing it is for human health to be eating foods that that are rich in all these different things that have just been totally lost through modern agriculture that is basically you're just you know you're you're eating roughage is what you're eating but the the idea of nutrient density and and how it improves human health and animal health is just such an important message to get out yeah that's great by the way you were talking about something i wanted to bring up uh, here and it's the you mentioned the red light treatment with right one of your advertisers yeah that's one of the things that these guys have the holistic doctors brought up and I have I brought up and I think I confused them a little bit but we're going to be uh, talking again this week but I said it is it really red light or is it more of a coral and a pink because what mm-hmm. you know jumped into my mind was this deal that the creation evidence museum in uh, Glen Rose <laughs> Texas yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And I wonder if it's along the same lines as that thinking. You know, I I will report more next week because uh, these folks want me to come over and, and give it a try. I do have to say that I trust uh, Dr. Dan Kirby more than most any human medical practitioner I know. Yeah. And um, he's he's seen, in some cases, it doesn't seem to do a lot. In some cases... He's seen uh, pets respond to it uh, very, very positively um, in a lot of different ways. Uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the, oh gosh, some of the different things that promote uh, deep wound healing and things like that. But in this case, uh, uh, he's seeing that it promotes a, sort of a detox and just animals that are trying to get through something. He said, you know, sometimes it helps, sometimes it doesn't. But he's... Uh, He's using it a great deal as uh, one of his therapies in, in some different cases, and he feel likes, feels like very successfully in some cases. So I think it's something the bears bears looking at. Well, one of the things that we promote, and we've got one, and we gave Logan and Bo one too, is a little sauna that's a portable uh, sauna. Uh-huh. It's terrific. Uh, I don't use it as much as I should because every time I use it, it really helps aches and pains and things like that. And mm-hmm. It works off of light frequencies uh, as well. And I wonder if all of that is kind of revolving around the same uh, theory. Uh, so, yeah, I'll be, I'll be really interested to uh, see what you think about all that yeah. and see if all this is related. Because there is definitely something to having a greenhouse or having plants uh, growing in an area where they're, it's going through this coral or pink light. You know, mm-hmm. we've talked about that before. It's, right. it's amazing what it'll, it'll do to plants. And I'm a little surprised that more people haven't gotten into it. And, of course, even mainstream agriculture has gotten into using plastic, which I don't like that much, but, but uh, plastic uh, mulch uh, fabrics on the ground that are different colors to get different results. So... There's definitely something to this color frequency thing. It's yeah, it it's interesting as I I can't claim to know 
a whole lot about it yet. It's something I'm watching very carefully and just very interested in. And like I say, you find two types of things, and, and stuff like this is new. You don't find it in a book somewhere. You do find it largely on the Internet, which I'm always suspicious of. But the stuff that's, that's research-based is, uh, I find it very, very interesting. If I, you know, start reading about something and, and it starts out, you know, we at such and such in our products, blah, 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 I just move on to the next one because I, I find that tends to be, you know, Malcolm used to always say that people accused him of getting the results he was expecting to see and I always uh, respected him for that. And that's why I hired somebody else to analyze some of his experiments. But, uh, there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of evidence, and the thing that I enjoy is learning a little bit more about how some of these things work. And uh, uh, give you an example of that, I was I was reading or studying about some of the different things they're learning about bricks and how it how it helps with insect controls in different ways. And in with the beetles, they don't seem to be as much as bothered by some things, but a high bricks material produces a lot of things that interfere with their digestion, so they're less likely to feed on that plant, while many other insects uh, respond because they're not getting the the information that they're getting through whatever resonance the plants are giving off. It's no longer, you know, saying, hey, I'm food, come eat me. But it's it's very different in the way that it affects different types of insects that may be damaging to our crops. And, you know, I have to study and think and, and really look carefully at it. But I find it just fascinating what some of the new research is producing. One of the things that we're doing, I um, and I've been kind of overlooking this for a while, and it relates to your comment a minute ago about the Internet. I noticed that we've got some anecdotal and general information on certain topics without having some real hard scientific research type things there as well. And I've been doing some, some uh, search on the Internet, and I've, I ran into a little trick. When you do... Uh, and I did this specifically when you're looking for some uh, scientific uh, research on something like tr- trichoderma, for example. Mm-hmm. You put that in the search. You don't just put in the search trichoderma. Uh-huh. You put in specifically scienti- scientific research on it. And, man, what comes up is amazing from all kinds of universities and everything on uh, basically everything uh, that we talk about, not not a hundred percent. There, cornmeal. Cornmeal is the most interesting. One. <laughs> the, the most research on cornmeal is done by you and me. Yeah, right. And, and then, and then the trichoderma. There's several different universities, the USDA, and all kind of people have stuff on the internet. We're putting all that uh, so it's easy to link to on TORC, on the Texas Organic Research Center. Well, I'll definitely take a look at that. That That's a, a very, very good point. Something else I have found that's interesting is how much of uh, how much new research is coming out of uh, the United Kingdom and coming out of Europe in general. And I was talking to uh, our arborist friend about that, and he said that that the European Union has actually banned so many of the things that you and I wish they would ban here that they're having to look for other solutions to some of the common problems, and their research is, you know, light years ahead of what's going on in this country. Our, you know, so many of our universities and things, it's just, you know, what chemical can we find to 
you know, to try to use against this. But uh, there's, and it's always funny, even if you don't know exactly where it came from, when you start seeing words like whilst, W-H-I-L-S-T, and color spelled with an O-U-R, then uh, <laughs> you know that it's coming from across the pond, so to speak. Well, I've but, run into the same thing uh, that you're saying there in this latest research. Uh-huh. A lot of it's U.K., and back when I was doing research on the uh, ginkgo tree on being able to change sex, that's right. where that research came from, yeah. from, uh, from uh, the U.K. Well, maybe maybe we'll get enough people buying your art and contributing to Torque that we can come up with some new uh, research projects. And you, I know, occasionally have uh, an intern to help out with things. And maybe we can come up with some good uh, home-based things, but... Uh, um, I, I'm, I'm going to really start including that in all my searches uh, with scientific research on that. That will narrow down the, the crud that comes up. <laughs> it's interesting what difference that makes, yeah. yeah. And there may be some other terms you could use, too, like you know, white papers on trichoderma or white papers on cornmeal or whatever the subject is. And, yeah, the ones that are lacking, maybe we can have some influence in getting some uh, research stuff going. That would sure be good. I, I love Torque and all the things that you promote, and and you do so much education through Torque. That's that's just that's where the future is, and getting the getting people interested. And I just I just love the trend of having uh, people that are just at the age when they're really getting their first homes, even sometimes their first apartments, and uh, they're interested in doing things the right way. And uh, and the excitement. I'll tell you one thing about it, and I don't know if you found this, but they are very into scientific plant names. They don't come in and ask for a split leaf philodendron. They come in and want to know if you have Monstera deliciosa or and That's and right. they're they have learned. They're not just parroting it, but they they are a whole lot more conversant about the scientific names. Which, you know, it, it, I think it's an interesting trend. I I feel like you and I need to know both. But when you have a you know a twenty two year year old in there asking you very technical questions about some of these plants you think wow these guys are serious about this and i i absolutely love that that's great i'm glad <laughs> to move in that direction but every now and then i have to go look something up <laughs> because I, I wasn't from... I'd, I'd get trapped i'd get embarrassed and all that <laughs> that's but, why i know better than i do yeah well i uh well i'm glad i'm uh uh, glad that the Mother Earth News event went well. I know you guys were... Wait, one thing that I yeah. ran into when I spoke at... The, I don't think I told you that when I spoke at the hemp convention, this guy came by and brought up a really interesting subject. And I haven't heard from him since then, and I, I hope it, uh, he follows up on it. But he was going into the biochar business, uh-huh. and he was asking if I knew anybody that had any bamboo. And I kind of grinned at him and said, well, yeah, I got about a <laughs> half an acre... And uh, my neighbors have about probably a total of about five acres, four acres or something. What he wants to do is go around, maybe he's listening, he wants to go around and collect from people that have bamboo, the dead bamboo, Mm -hmm. the brown stuff, because he said it's the very best fuel for biochar. Really? And I guess it probably makes sense from the standpoint that I think that bamboo has a very high level of silica in it, and it's probably, uh, you know, more bioavailable than, 
you know, just digging sand off of a beach or something like that, mm-hmm. just like some of the other silica things that we uh, use. So any of the listeners that are making your own biochar or playing around with it in any way, you might uh, keep that in mind. He was going to go to properties and uh, at no charge, just, you know, cut down all the uh, dead bamboo and haul it off, and that would be a great benefit to a lot of people. We've got a ton of sure. dead that I haven't gotten around to removing uh, mm-hmm. in our own uh, and our neighbor, neighbors have even more than we do. So just a, an interesting thing we ran into there. Well, and it's, you know, I I've always keep a list of things. If we have time, This is these are things I want to ask Howard about. And one of them on my list that I guess we'll cover another time are is the relationship between uh, biochar as opposed to activated charcoal as opposed to what uh, good dry humates and you know, I'm reading different things, and different people think uh, that one is better than the other when it comes to cleaning up toxins as well as just improving soil health. And I think that would be an interesting discussion to have as to uh, uh, the pluses and minuses of, uh, you know, the three different products. Well, that yeah, we'll talk about that later because that could get to be an interesting conversation. Biochar has gone through this intense heat. Mm-hmm. And when you go through intense heat, you know, as Malcolm discovered, when the uh, pallet burnt, pile of pallets burned up on his place, yeah, anything when it goes in through se- really severe heat will build paramagnetism. Right. So mm-hmm. you could have a carbon product that also has paramagnetism. You know, that's generally the other way around. Usually the, yeah. the carbon has uh, biomag- uh, you know, uh, what's the neutral term? Uh, paramagnetism and um, yeah, I know what whatever you're... the opposite term is. I'm drawing right. a blank. But anyway, we'll talk about that when we have more time because that may be something that could be really important. Yeah, and diamagnetism. Yeah, yeah. diamagnetic. That's that's the word you're looking for. Yeah. But uh, oh man, we'll never run out of things to talk about. We just always appreciate you taking a little bit of your Saturday morning, and as always, we certainly look forward to next week. Well, Nellie's right here in my face saying goodbye to everybody. She's <laughs> yeah, Chris said. We, we enjoyed it, and we'll see everybody next and week. And Chris said Tater was in good voice early this morning, he too. Was, so, was, yeah, give them, you, you probably heard me quoting the little poem that one of my animals wrote in their Valentine card to me that was, uh, Roses are red, violets are blue. When we get hungry, we think of you. <laughs> <laughs> Have a great week, Howard. Uh, thank you, and we'll talk again soon. Bye-bye. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. It's going to be Frank and Richard and Don, and Frank's up first. Good morning, Frank. Good morning, Bob. How are you doing this morning? Uh, Just very, very well. Can't wait to get back out in what's going to be a very beautiful day. I think so, too. I just uh, wonder, what's a a good tomato y'all have out there? Um, That'd be like, I don't know what to call it, a slicing tomato or something, kind of a large one. And when should I put it in the ground? <laughs> I wouldn't put things in the ground until we feel like we're past the danger of freezing weather. Now, you know, your guess is as good as mine on that one. I was just, in fact, I was just looking at the forecast for Bernie during that long commercial break, and they're showing 26 degrees next Thursday morning. Oh so, my gosh. yeah, it's, we're not out of winter yet. I have no problem with, uh, planting tomatoes into bigger pots for a while, but I just, I, I'm not putting mine in the ground yet. Now, as far as varieties, um, I have to say a couple of my favorites. I like one called Arkansas Traveler. It seems to produce later into the summer. 
than uh, many other slicing tomatoes. Um, I always plant celebrity. Celebrity is uh, is just one of the most dependable, good slicing tomatoes out there. And okay. I like some of the the tomatoes that are very high in anthocyanin. I think they have more flavor, and that's going to include things like Cherokee purple. So those are three of my top slicing tomatoes. Uh, um, I'm not sure about the availability of plants yet. We're getting some plants in, but, you know, two weeks from now, we and everybody else are going to have lots, lots more variety. But if I were looking for top three slicers, I'd probably say, you know, Celebrity Arkansas Traveler and Cherokee Purple are going to be right up there. Now, if you like a yellow tomato, um, there are two that are very similar. One of them's called Lemon Boy. The other's called Carolina Gold. And those are outstanding for a uh, for a slicing tomato where you like a little bit sweeter tomato. They are they're really good and really productive. Okay, you uh, you're probably going to have those three at the shop. I don't know if we do today or not. I, well, I mean, you're going to get them. Though. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, that's it. Then thank you very much, Bob. Give I guess that's it for this morning. Thank well, you. Well, you have a good morning. I appreciate the call, Frank. Thank you, sir. And Richard is next. Good morning, Richard. Hello, Bob. Hi. Question. I think I know the answer, but what's your opinion of this Amazoizoizia I see advertised in the magazines? Uh, it's like most of what I see advertised in the magazines. <laughs> it's uh, it, Whether or not it's a good grass, I haven't grown it, so I'm not really going to be able to say. But when you look at the price that they charge for the plugs and things like that, it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, if you want plugs, I'm going to tell you, go buy emerald, either Emerald or um, El Toro Zoysia. Chop it into plugs yourself, and you'll get about 10 times as much grass for the same money. But well, those are still my, my two. My question is, uh, what I have common read in the backyard, and uh-huh. I'm looking between my houses where it only gets about four, five hours of sun. It just seems like I have horse yeah. herb on one side and crabgrass on the other and my neighbor's got the you know he got he's got the chemical company that comes out right so he's got some very poor looking bermuda well on that side and that's it so what will grow in those conditions uh saint augustine okay. there there is no zoysia people market zoysias growing in the shade it it may for a little while but it's going to be so thin and nasty it's just not a decent grass i love it in the sun where you don't have a lot of foot traffic but uh, over in that area, if I wanted grass in that area, um, true grass, I'd be looking at either uh, Palmetto or Del Mar, St. Augustine. Okay. Now, the other the other option, it's slower to get established, but you can put some stepping stones through there and plant a ground cover. If you want, with the common thing, you plant Asian jasmine. If you want something a little different, you can plant black stem peppermint or, uh, you know, some things like that. But... Um, longer to develop, but much less maintenance long-term would be to go with a shade-tolerant ground cover. But if I were going for grass, it's going to be Palmetto or Del Mar. All right. Thank you much. You're welcome. Thank you. (laughs) Goodbye. All right. Looks like we work out just fine on time. Don, we've got plenty of time for your questions. How can I help today? Yeah. Well, i got a couple questions I need to ask about compost. I've got some compost, and they I found out later that they told me it was made with mesquite. And somebody told me, well, mesquite is not good for compost. It's not biodegradable. 
Is it true or what the deal about mesquite compost? Well, it is biodegradable, but it takes longer to break down. I think it makes an excellent mulch, but um, you'll just have to look at the compost and see. Now, the one thing that people will sometimes tell you about mesquite is that it has something in it that hinders plant growth, and that simply is not true. It uh, uh, doesn't have anything allelopathic in there, but... uh, uh, it is going to be slower to break down. It's going to be, you know, you're going to have a little bit more fibrous material in there, but uh, it just means it just means it's going to be around longer before it fully decomposes. But I don't feel like it robs the soil of anything, and I certainly don't think it has any negative qualities. So, uh, um, yeah, it's it's not going to break down as quickly. But uh, if you're patient, it, it there's nothing at all wrong with it for compost. What about you? I heard about talking about molasses around the stump. Will molasses help it to break down or not? Molasses is a very strong stimulator of soil microbes, especially bacteria. So molasses is useful in a lot of different situations. It will help compost to break down, but when it comes to uh, you know to something really woody like a stump, that's actually broken down more by fungi than it is by compost. So. Uh, uh, it's going to help, but uh, molasses in your compost pile is great, but I don't think you're going to see a lot of results uh, putting it on stumps, hoping they'll decay, decay faster. Okay. Uh, what about pH on tomatoes and, and uh, melons? Okay. What should the pH be on tomatoes? You know, I don't pay any attention to pH anymore. Um, it's back in the days when everything was, you know, chemically driven, synthetic fertilizers and all of that. Uh, people talked an awful lot about pH, and the truth is that with with many chemical substances, I guess I'm trying to think of the easiest way to explain it, as you lower the pH, you make them more soluble so that they are more readily taken up by the plants. Using organics, as I prefer to do, uh, pH doesn't have nearly as much influence on things because when you're staying organic, you're bringing in natural acids like humic acid and fulvic acid. And so um, ideally, I'd have to say you can grow good tomatoes uh, anywhere from about a uh, pH of about 6 up to a pH of maybe 8.5. But uh, And, you know, pH is a logarithmic scale. That means that... Uh, Oh, say a pH of 8 is 10 times as uh, alkaline as a neutral pH. pH of 9 is 100 times as much. pH of 10 is 1,000 times as much. So it's, it's not like just a direct number scale. But I, I, I don't really pay a lot of attention to pH, and I don't really worry about using acids or in other parts of the country using lime and other basic things to change it. I think if your soil is rich, uh, in compost, rich in decomposing organic material, you're going to get all the acidic effects you need from the humic and fulvic acids that this produces. And most of the nutrients in an organic fertilizer um, don't have to be in a uh, given pH to break down. They're naturally broken down by soil microbes. So um, anyway, a little bit more. We we talk all day about pH, but uh, I don't pay as much attention to it as I did back before I really got fully into organics. I don't think it's nearly as important. Yeah, one other quick question. Uh, Israeli melons. Have you ever heard of any melons? Oh, yeah. There's some really good. Uh, they're small melon, and uh, 
In fact, some of them are what uh, I like to call a personal size melon. You can eat the whole thing in one in one sitting. Uh, there are lots of different varieties, and you simply have to you know try some of them and see which ones you like best. But uh, there are a lot of good plants. You know, Israel is in many ways like us as far as being a dry climate. I've never been there, but this is what I I know about it. It's a very dry climate with very very limited water. So the Israelis have developed uh, a lot of different plants that will absolutely thrive here, and some of their melons are some of the tastiest in the world. Yes, sir. Well, praise God. Perhaps I miss you. I eat some about 40, 45 years ago, and I never <laughs> seen anybody grow, grow them around, you know, and then I got on the Internet and bought some seeds and planted them, <laughs> but they haven't come up yet. But I was just curious about this. Well, you know, I mean, they're really sweet, you know, like a cantaloupe. They're yeah, real sweet. They are very sweet and very good, and be glad that they are haven't come up because I'm afraid it's going to get cold enough to – um, set back some of these things uh, mid to late week. If they come up in the next few days, do people be prepared to cover them with some insulators, some floating roll cover or something because uh, uh, we're probably going to get pretty chilly in this next week. I'm down here at Club 50, so it may not get that cold down there. So. Uh, yeah, you won't get that cold, but uh, uh, don't trust the weatherman until about uh, till that two hours before it actually happens. So, Good luck with them. Let me know what you think of them. I'm always looking for a good new melon because I, I love good, tasty melons. I'll be interested to what, hear what you think of these. And if you're not growing any other melons, uh, they should come pretty true from seed. So be sure and save some of the seeds from your melons this year to replant next year so you don't have to buy more seed if it turns out to be real good. They're $5 for 25 Yeah. I wouldn't complain, and uh, I look forward to hearing how good they are from you. Okay, I appreciate your call here. Thank you for calling. I, appreciate, I really enjoy your show. Thanks, sir. Thank appreciate you, Don. It. I thank you for calling, and we'll talk yeah. again.